Our Bible reading today is from Genesis 18, starting at verse 1, going to verse 15. Genesis 18. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham at the Oaks of Mamre while he was sitting in the entrance of his tent during the heat of the day. He looked up and he saw three men standing near him. When he saw them, he ran from the entrance of the tent to meet them and bowed to the ground. Then he said, My Lord, if I have found favour in your sight, please do not go on past your servant. Let a little water be brought that you may wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. I'll bring a bit of bread so that you may strengthen yourselves. This is why you have passed your servant's way. Later you can continue on. Yes, they replied, do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent and said to Sarah, Quick, knead three measures of fine flour and make bread. Meanwhile, Abraham ran to the herd and got a tender choice calf. He gave it to to a young man who hurried to prepare it. Then Abraham took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set them before the men. He served them as they ate under the tree. Where is your wife, Sarah, they asked him. There in the tent, he answered. The Lord said, I will certainly come back to you in about a year's time and your wife, Sarah, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent behind him. Abraham and Sarah were were old and getting on in years. Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. So she laughed to herself. After I have become shriveled up, And my Lord is old, will I have delight? But the Lord asked Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Can I really have a baby when I'm old? Is anything impossible for the Lord? At the appointed time I will come back to you, and in about a year she will have a son. Sarah denied it. I did not laugh, she said, because she was afraid. But he replied, No, you did laugh. G'day guys, uh, how are you going? I'll just set this up. Okay, oh, thanks Pete. Cool, well it might help if you've got your outline there with you and you may want to take notes, um, but if you're not a note taker that's okay too. Um, my name is Ajo, if I haven't met you before, and we're going to be looking at this passage that Paul read for us. Um, but first let me pray. I want to read from Psalm 19, just as part of our prayer. The instruction of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. The commandment of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. They are more desirable than gold, than an abundant of pure gold, and sweeter than honey, than honey dripping from the comb. Lord, we pray that the words of my mouth 
and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, some people just seem to be able to achieve the absolute impossible for the rest of us. Wim Hof is an endurance artist and he currently holds 18 world records for the superhuman acts that he has performed. Uh, And he demonstrates his ability to withstand the absolute kind of extreme temperatures um, that he's faced. In 2007, a whim attempted to climb Mount Everest, but he was wearing nothing except shorts. Crazy, huh? Well, unfortunately, he failed this first attempt to climb a mountain in only shorts. Yeah, duh. (laughs) It's doing something stupid. But it wasn't because of the cold. It was because of a foot injury. And in 2009, he tried again to climb another mountain. This time was Mount Kilimanjaro, which is about some 5,895 metres high. And he climbed it in two days' time, wearing nothing again but shorts. Fantastic. He's amazing. And Hoff, he also broke his own record by fully submerging himself in an ice bath, and he stayed there for one hour and 44 minutes. Pretty astounding. These feats that Hoff has has made, I don't think will ever be replicated by myself. I don't think I even want to try and submerge myself for one hour and 44 minutes completely in ice. Uh, But Hoff, um, and and I suspect that neither of us, uh, neither any of us will will do these things either. However, Hoff, he's only a human. Hoff failed to climb Mount Everest and he couldn't even make two hours in the ice bath. Well, we all experience moments like this where somehow the seemingly impossible, whether it's to do the, the day's to-do list, uh, we manage to achieve that, and it feels like a real success. Uh, sometimes that can be really rare, and the to-do, to-do list just seems to go on and on and on for months on end. Uh, but it's safe to say that we also have many moments where the impossible just seems way too much for us to achieve by ourselves. I know when things are too hard for myself... I like to go and find someone to talk about it with and, and sort of mull over that situation and try and come up with some solutions. Or, or I go away by myself and spend some time in prayer talking to God about it. When God makes promises in the Bible that seem so big sometimes and so important, nearly impossible, how do we respond to those promises? God promises to forgive our sins And yet we find ourselves daily struggling, feeling guilty for our sin. How do we hold on to God's promises when we're struggling with guilt for our sin? Or how should we respond when in life we are faced with impossible circumstances that we're up against? You know, God promises to work for our good and yet bad and and terrible things just seem to happen uh, to us and to the people around us. How can we have confidence in God when we are faced with the impossible? How can you and I have confidence in God when we are faced with the impossible? Now, in Genesis 18, uh, we come across Abraham. We're we're back to this series, in case you you didn't know where we're up to. And Abraham, he's still waiting for God to fulfill his promise that he made. God had promised to give him a son through his wife, Sarah, Sarah which we saw last time in Genesis chapter 17, 
Let me reread that for you. Verse 17. Abraham fell to the ground, laughed and thought in his heart, can a child be born to a hundred-year-old man? Can Sarah, a 90-year-old woman, give birth? So Abraham said to God, if only Ishmael could live in your presence. But God said, no, your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will name him Isaac. I will confirm my covenant with you as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. So it's been over a decade and this promise that God made uh, is, still, is still waiting for it. And the, the tension is starting to rise a bit. And I don't remember if, if, if you remember that chart I kind of showed when we did Genesis 15, but for Abraham and Sarah, uh, their confidence in God is no longer going up, it, it's on the way down. Things are seemingly impossible for them to be able to have a child. They're getting old. Their way that they tried through Ishmael has failed. And time's just not going to wait around for them. Yet God has helped Abraham in the previous chapter to keep having confidence in him. And we saw that God confirmed this through the sign of circumcision and he reaffirmed his promise to Abraham then. But we were left with this rising tension of when's it going to happen, God? How could Abraham and Sarah continue to have confidence in God to bring about a child, even though it seemed impossible for them at such an age. Well, as the narrative continues in Genesis 18, we notice firstly that the Lord God, he, he himself comes on the scene and he wants to show that, that he is the one who is going to achieve his promise personally. Look with me in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 18. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham at the yokes of Mamre, while he was sitting in the entrance of his tent during the heat of the day. He looked up and he saw three men standing near him. When he saw them, he ran from the entrance of the tent to meet them and he bowed to the ground. Straight away, uh, we're told in these few verses that God is making himself visible to his people, Abraham. We're told in verse 1 that the Lord appears to Abraham and it's at, a, at his favourite place of worship, at Mamre, where he likes to worship God. And he set up an altar there in chapter 13. And he worshipped him there again in chapter 14. And in verse 2, as Abraham's eyes lift up from maybe asleep or whatever he was doing, his eyes are drawn immediately to these three men who are standing off a bit of a way and they're kind of looking towards him. And these three men are of some significance. Uh, we, we know, as the readers of this passage, that the three men are, are the Lord God and probably two angels, as Genesis chapter 19 picks up on the two angels going down to Sodom and Gomorrah uh, to judge them. However, it seems unlikely that Abraham himself in the passage knew who they were until a bit later. Uh, of interest, though, is how Abraham actually gets down and bows to them on the ground. Uh, and I guess that's kind of suggesting that he's treating them with, with some sort of respect or he's revering them. Uh, he's almost bowing in worship of them as if, as if they were a king or, or some sort of royalty uh, or, or even a deity. That's what bowing in that culture usually meant. Uh, this scene kind of reminds me uh, of when 
Uh, I, I've been visiting campus on Beach Mission, and uh, every year that we go and, and we visit people, some are, are more permanent structures, and then some are like tents. And so when you visit a tent, you can't exactly knock on the tent and wait at the door. There's no real door at the tent, really, and, and, and there's nowhere to knock. Um, so normally what you do is, is you kind of stand a bit back and you, you just talk to them and, and you wait for them to respond to you at the tent. Um, and you wait to be welcomed into the shade of their tent uh, and the area that they've set up. Uh, and often the country hospitality comes out from a lot of the people up at the broom where we go. And uh, they, they welcome us in quite, quite openly. And, and they say, look, come in, come in, come out of the sun. It's really hot. It's summertime. Uh, sit down in the shade. They set up the chairs for Catherine and I and they say, let's, let's have a drink and a chat. So we do. And it's great. So when the Lord God shows up in person to Abraham for a drink and a chat, it was very fitting for Abraham to bow to him in great respect and welcome him uh, into the shade. Uh, in this scene, the Lord God shows us that he is turning up uh, to deal with the problem in person. God's promise is going to be achieved through himself. So not only does Abraham get a visit from the divine, but he then proceeds to entertain these divine guests. As Abraham greeted these men, his confidence in God to fulfill his promise had been under trial for some time. One begins to wonder, would Abraham continue to have confidence in God despite the impossible circumstances that he faces? Let's read on in verse 3. Then he said, My Lord, if I have found favour in your sight, please do not go on past your servant. Let a little water be brought, that you may wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. I will bring a bit of bread, so that you may strengthen yourselves. This is why you have passed your servant's way. Later, you can continue on. Yes, they replied, Do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent and said to Sarah, Quick, knead three measures of fine flour and make bread. Meanwhile, Abraham ran to the herd and got a tender choice calf. He gave it to a young man who hurried to prepare it. Then Abraham took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set them before the men. He served them as they ate under the tree. So again in this section... We get hints of worship going on. Abraham refers in verse 3 to the visitors as my Lord. Uh, You'll probably notice that it's not in the capital L-O-R-D. So it's it's not the word for for the divine name for God uh, going on there. It's it's more of just a a great respect. That's that's kind of the title, Lord or Master. Um, There's some differences in the commentaries over that, but yeah, really that's that's kind of what it is. Um, He's treating them with respect. And so if he's retreating them with respect, then it's kind of appropriate in this scene that Abraham acts as their servant. If they are the master, they are the Lord, uh, he is their servant. And so Abraham, he firstly offers the visitors to stay with him under the shade of the tree in verse 3. And then in verse 4, he, he says, look, I'll bring some water out and you can wash your feet from the journey that you've been on and rest in the shade of the tree. And then verse 5, Abraham offers them to feed the men so that they can regain strength for the rest of the journey. Abraham is assuming that these guys have been on some journey. They've stopped 
They've waited because they've seen him set up there, probably somewhere in the desert uh, area, and, and they sort of want to rest and, and be refreshed for the rest of the journey. And Abraham is being overly hospitable to them. He's very welcoming to them. Well, we see the visitors, they actually agree to stay. And Abraham chooses uh, to be overly welcoming to them. We're told several times as well, Abraham doesn't lose any time at all in preparing uh, this food and and all this stuff for the visitors to be able to stay there. Uh, We read in verse 6 that he hurries into the tent. And then he says to Sarah, quick, make bread. And then we're told that he runs. He runs all the way out the back. And he chooses a calf, um, the best kind of one. And then he gives it to a young man who then, uh, the young man, he, he sort of catches Abraham's urgency. So he hurries to prepare the calf. What Abraham then prepared for all these visitors was much more than what they needed. Uh, it was kind of like preparing a feast for a king. He's putting on a massive banquet. Um, and it could have been because he'd, he'd had a bit of a lonely time out there uh, or, and, and then sort of having these visitors made him really happy and so he just wanted to really enjoy the time, have a feast with them. Uh, or it could have been because Abraham actually sensed that these guys, um, they just weren't an ordinary visit from travellers but possibly uh, he might have sensed that they were of some great significance. And I just wanted to demonstrate the sheer quantity of, of what Abraham got out uh, to serve his guests. So I've got under here um, pretty much what he told Sarah uh, to, to, um, to make. So he got about heaps of flour. That three kind of measures is actually about 16 kilos of flour, believe it or not. So in your average kind of making of bread of this kind of sort, where it's kind of a flat bread... Um, use about maybe 250 grams per, per one. Um, that's including probably, you know, all the flour that you scattered down before you knead it and stuff. So Abraham is putting on a massive feast of bread. Can you imagine just being the three guys and, and you're sort of there and, and this guy just brings out plate after plate of bread and then you've got meat to like wrap it up in and you're eating a really nice kind of kebab kind of sandwich with meat, fresh meat, it's, it's, it's like he's putting on a really luscious banquet for these guys. It's, it's quite phenomenal. Like, it's actually making me hungry just thinking about it. <laughs> um, thank goodness we've got a nice soup to look forward to afterwards. And I worked out the quantities. It, with 16 kilos of flour, you could actually make about 64 flat breads, right? Or, or more, maybe, um, which is a whole lot. So these three guys are in for a feast. This journey is going to be simple if they were to go on after eating all this food. They'd probably fill up um, all their bags and stuff with it as well. Um, Abraham is just being so generous in his hospitality to these guys. Uh, And the New Testament uh, picks up on this incident. Uh, And there's a few other ones kind of like this. Uh, We see in the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 13, uh, verse 2, uh, that Abraham, uh, this scene is actually talked about. And it's on page 1024, if you want to flip there. Uh, it says, Don't neglect to show hospitality, for by doing this, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. So Abraham didn't know that these were uh, divine guests, that they were angels. 
Um, and I was just thinking about this, this kind of idea that Abraham was just so, so generous uh, in his hospitality. And, and I think it would be easy to sort of read, read what's going on in Genesis and, and what we know from the New Testament, like from Hebrews chapter 13, and kind of just go, well, you know, we're, we're doing all right at that. Um, and, and think of some other easier targets to point the finger at um, and sort of say, well, they're not so good at that um, as well. But, but I think here at SOMA, like, we, we actually do try and do hospitality. Uh, and I think probably all of us here really actually like the idea of being hospitable. Um, you probably have done so on your own terms, um, maybe outside of church with each other. Uh, we do it in our GCs probably as well. Uh, we do, we're doing it this afternoon, uh, and that's fantastic. Um, we even do it when someone's in need and they let the church know uh, that we, we collect food for them to be able to drop to them. And these are great ways to actually be hospitable. I think we here at SOMA actually really know uh, that God has been generous to us. And so we want to we be hospitable to others and, and show that love that way. But, but I just wanted us today just to stop and rethink about how we're going um, at it. Uh, yesterday, as Pete mentioned, we had a drawing board day and a bunch of the guys that were here, um, you, you would have seen us put our hands up, but um, we, we stopped and we just took stock of what God is doing here at SOMA. Uh, and actually, hospitality was one of the areas, to my surprise, that came up. Uh, and Vessels actually had some good ideas as to how we could improve that. And you'll, you'll hear more about that, but if you want to chat to Vessels... Um, I'm sure he'd love to chat to you more about that. Um, but Vessels, Vessels thought about it in such a way uh, so that members here at SOMA, those of us who are regular, can actually be loving and caring for each other in hospitality. And it was just some different ways from what we'd been thinking. Uh, so this is more of just an encouragement to, to keep thinking harder. How can we, how can we raise the bar uh, in our service and love for each other? Uh, and I've been mulling over this, so it was a surprise for me, but I've been mulling over this uh, quite a bit as well. Um, and so I just wanted to go into one area of hospitality that I think uh, that we could be doing better on. Um, and I think we could be doing better on it just because I think we tend to leave this area of hospitality probably more up to Pete and Audrey as, as the pastor and uh, pastor's wife, the church planners. Um, and, and it's the area of welcoming visitors or newcomers or people who want to make some of their home uh, into, into our church family. Uh, I think we actually have it pretty good, as I mentioned, with the afternoon tea, but I want us to consider um, whether maybe you uh, can even consider doing this, but, but actually meeting those who are new, uh, which we should be doing here as members, in actually welcoming people into our church, um, but then actually inviting them um, to, to catch up for a meal, have them over or, or, or meet somewhere with them and get to know them, spend the week with them and be hospitable uh, with them. It doesn't have to be on a Sunday either. Sunday can often be a busy day. Uh, the week, it's the end of the weekend after church. Uh, for those of us with kids, you've got to put your kids to bed and things like that. So it can often be a hard day for that sort of thing to happen. But why not during the week ahead? Invite them over. I'm coming back to Genesis 18... Uh, we see in the second scene how God is willing to be personal with Abraham. He's willing to eat there with him. But we also see Abraham's generous hospitality that led him to welcome the Lord, uh, to treat him and the angels as guests without even knowing it. 
But still unanswered, however, is how the Lord is going to give confidence to Abraham and Sarah um, in his promise to, to give them a son, despite their impossible circumstances, their age is really limiting them. If you're taking notes, you'll notice on the outline that there's a question here. Can God really do that? Uh, What I'm trying to pull out of the text here is not one of those kind of silly, impossible kind of questions of like, you know, can God make a stone so big uh, and so heavy that he's not able to lift it? It's not one of those kind of silly questions. It's more of a question of, will God really do that? In verse 9, we see the men ask Abraham a question. Where is your wife, Sarah? Uh, this kind of question here, the, the kind of where, where is someone kind of question, should make us think back to Genesis chapter 3 and then chapter 4, uh, where we've got the story of, of uh, the fall where Abraham and Eve uh, sin against God and then when Cain sins against his brother Abel. Uh, God asked Adam after they'd, they'd eaten the fruit that they were warned not to, where are you? And God asked Cain, after he, he'd murdered his brother, he killed him. He said, where is your brother Abel? God asked these kind of questions after these people had sinned. God asked these kind of where questions when he's seeking to provoke a response from his people. And it's often tied to their failure to keep God's commands. Abraham's reply, which we see, is very straightforward in verse 9. He just says, She's there in the tent. Uh, and, it, and after Abraham replies like this, God, the Lord God actually makes his promise known now, not only to Abraham, which he did in chapter 17, but Sarah's there and she's listening in from the tent. God, God um, he wants to make his promise known to, to both of them uh, in very certain terms, which we see in verse 10, that in about a year's time, the Lord will return and Sarah will actually have a son. Uh, and then we have some comments by the narrator in verse 10 and 11, which are provided there for us. Uh, we're told, firstly, that Sarah was listening in. Uh, secondly, that Abraham and Sarah were getting on in years. And thirdly, that Sarah was past the age of childbearing. And if we read on into verse 12, our first read we could simply understand Sarah's reaction. She has a laugh and she thinks to herself, is this actually going to happen? Will God really do this? I guess if we had a more updated 21st century Bible, you know, like one of those ones where they they kind of make it more colloquial language, uh, and if we rephrased it without a question, it it might read like Sarah LOL'd as she thought, surely I'm past that age of childbearing and my husband, he's old and lazy. There's no chance of that at all happening. But as we continue to read what happens, we actually see here that, that Sarah's laugh and her, her thinking about what God had said um, isn't simply understandable. It's actually that she's doubting God's promise. Sarah had sinned against God. She was answering the question of, can God really do that, with an emphatic no. No. Then in verse 13, God questions Abraham, uh, which is interesting that he questions Abraham if Sarah is listening in. Um, And it could be that Abraham is partly responsible here for his wife's reaction and her thinking. Abraham had been told after all in chapter 17 
of the Lord's promises and his plans. Sarah hadn't been there for that. And maybe Abraham hadn't actually passed that information on. So he was held responsible for that. And I guess as a small aside here, for those of us who are husbands, uh, we need to be careful to actually, in the way that we love our wives. Um, I think we need to be working hard to, to love our wives in a way that encourages their faith. So that they actually get that knowledge of God that, that we might have the privilege of doing so. Um, and for those of us who have more, we, we need to be um, using that in a, in a way that actually really um, helps our wives grow as well. Um, we want to set an example for our wives in a way that loves them. Um, and, and our words to them as well need to be godly and, and helping them grow. Um, let me just ask two questions here, um, which I found helpful for myself. Um, when was the last time that we heard or saw our spouse, our wife, maybe for guys or, or husband for girls, but I want to speak particularly the guys here, our wife be ungodly and we did nothing? And secondly, have we lost the biblical idea of love? That sometimes a gentle and corrective rebuke of words is actually needed, as this is, can actually be loving in a situation. I just want to ask those two questions as an aside, and it might be for you to think about, take away, and, and, and maybe change as a result. I don't know. In verse 15, we read then, Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, that is God, said, yes, you did laugh. Can you imagine doing that to God? Not only did Sarah laugh at God's words, his promise to turn up in a year's time and she would have a son, but then she went and lied to God? Who does she think she is? Well, no wonder God showed up in person as he probably knew here that Sarah's confidence in him was severely lacking at this point. She hadn't been passed on that promise that Abraham had heard. Sarah mocks God, and yet God graciously shows up in person, and he addresses her in personal way. He knows her, her barren concerns, that she's not able to have children. God sees her, and, and he knows her. He, he wants her to place her trust in him, to have confidence in him. God has a final word here, and, and he says to Sarah as a, a gentle rebuke, no, you did laugh. God knows her. In fact, God kind of gets the last laugh as such. The, the name that he chose in chapter 17, Isaac, for their son, is actually means he laughs. And I just want to draw this a bit closer to us today. And I just want us to reflect on the question for, for the moment. Can God really do that for us? Can God really do that for us? Maybe you're faced with a seemingly impossible decision at the moment. Can God really help me use this new job for his glory? Can God really use my singleness, my marriage, maybe my barrenness, my family, my friends, 
to make me more Christ-like? Can God really use me here in Australia? Or or does he want me to go abroad when, when I don't feel like I want to, to spread the gospel? If I invite that person at my workplace that friend of mine that I know is a, is a hardened atheist and they've told me so, if I invite them along to church, can God really use that? How can you have confidence in God that will guide you through whatever thing that you might be facing so that your decisions and your actions honour God in a way that really pleases him and is for his glory? Just be really honest for a moment with your answer. You might have something in your mind, something that's been on your heart during the week. Just think about it. Are you having confidence in God in that? Or are you taking that into your own hands? Well, look with me at the Lord's reply to Sarah in verse 14 again. Verse 14 says, Is anything impossible for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will come back to you, and in about a year, she will have a son. See, God doesn't leave the question hanging for Sarah or Abraham, and nor for us as the readers of this story. Nothing is too impossible or too hard for the Lord. The answer to the question is, of can God really do that, is that he will do anything that he purposes. Uh, Jesus taught about um, God's purposes as well. And and when he was talking about the kingdom of heaven, uh, Jesus said in in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 23 and following, uh, he said, I assure you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were utterly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and he said, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So the immediate answer to the question of, Can God really do that? Like when you're really asking that about a circumstance or issue, is that with God, nothing is impossible. God will keep his promises that he makes. In Romans chapter 4, verse 19 onwards, um, Paul reflects on the promises that God made to Abraham and Sarah about about giving them a son. Uh, And he says, this is talking about Abraham, he considered his own body to be already dead since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb without weakening in faith. He did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God because he was fully convinced uh, that what he had promised, that he was also able to perform. Some of God's promises, we, we just won't see... Uh, fulfilled until Christ's coming. Uh, and some uh, uh, we, we just won't see until we're with Christ in heaven. Just some of the things that he's promised, we're just going to be involved in and part of the picture 
And we're not going to see that big picture until we're in heaven. And that's okay. Uh, But we know that God's promises have found their completion in Jesus Christ. Jesus came to earth and he lived a perfect life. He died for you and I. And he rose again from the dead, defeating death. And he ascended into heaven where he's now seated at God's right hand. And he's going to come again and he's promised that. Jesus is that ultimate superhuman. He's better than Hoff. Because in him everything is possible. When we're faced with the impossible, we can have confidence in God. And I'm not talking about the things that God doesn't necessarily promise. I'm talking about the things that God does promise, that he does make certain. Jesus has actually overcome the impossible, death itself. And he's promised to come back. And we we can actually trust him with his promises. He's able to save those who believe in him. God's promises will be achieved because God is a personal God. And in him, nothing is impossible. Let's pray. Our great God, we just want to praise you for who you are. We thank you that you are personal, that you are the God who who sees and you know us. Lord God, you, you knew Abraham and Sarah and where they were at, lacking confidence in you, and you turned up in person to speak into their circumstances Uh, to renew their their confidence in you because you are the God for whom nothing is impossible when you promise it, Lord. So, Lord, we want to pray that uh, for our circumstances, our life today here, uh, that you might um, please uh, renew our confidence in you today. We just want to thank you so much that we have your great promises in your word, uh, that you're going to build your church, uh, that you're going to make us more and more Christ-like, You're the one who's going to do that, Lord, not us. With us, that that is impossible. But with you, all things are possible. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that we can look forward to your return as well. And Lord, we want to pray that that you just be with us um, each and every day, Lord. Help us to keep uh, trusting in your promises. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.